Welcome to Course Stories, produced by the instructional design and new media team of EdPlus at Arizona State University. In this podcast, we tell an array of course design stories alongside other ASU Online designers and faculty. On today's course story, it's a completely different skill set to teach on camera. Even with something with PBS, when I'm looking directly at camera, even, is different than traditional acting. And I think some people think that, oh, you're teaching on camera, you're doing the YouTube channel, you're acting or you're performing, you're not a scholar, which is definitely not true. I can't act to save my life. I had to for one of the episodes and I was terrible at it. And I kept looking directly at camera because I want people that I'm talking to electronically, if that's in one of ASU's online classrooms or if that's the PBS channel or what have you, to feel the connection. Because one of the pedagogies for my teaching is trying to come to students on their level. And yes, you may be across the world, but maybe if I can make eye contact with you, we can create that little pathos bond and we can have a better conversation, even if it is electronically. Hi, I'm Mary Loader, an instructional designer from ASU Online. I'm Ricardo Leone. I'm a media specialist at the same place. Yeah, we work together. Let's get on with the show. Okay. Hey, Mary. Hey, Ricardo. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. So Good. in this episode, I got to do the interview. Yes. And I sat behind the scenes. For the listeners out there and the viewers, maybe. We usually, Mary and I, are in the room producing yes. while our instructional designer is running the interview. Since it was me this time, I thought we could do it a little bit different. I mainly ran the interview, but you were behind the scenes giving us notes and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's fair is fair, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Same didn't capture what it is that we do when we're... We're in the room. So, yeah. So you might not be able to hear us, uh, listeners, but we're there on every interview. And sometimes you can hear us because we can't help but cackle. And then it's while they're talking. Yes, Yes. that's absolutely (laughs) true. So who am I interviewing today, Mary? Emily Zarka, who is quite interesting. Yes. Because you recommended Emily because of her presence in video, because she's very intentional with how videos are produced and Mm -hmm. her part in them. And she takes it very seriously, which we adore. But also, she's very interesting. Like, she's this tiny, cute little thing, (laughs) but she loves monsters. Yes. Like, that's her thing. She's a monster expert. She's the ASU's official monster expert. I think she is the monster expert. She's not even just ASU's because she's PBS's monstrum host? Yes. She hosts right. a, a YouTube series through PBS called Monstrum. It's like totally super awesome and super accessible and really fun. So uh, do we ever get a course for her? Well, I know that she does 102 often and she uh-huh. did talk about Shakespeare in part. Uh-huh. So those are courses that she teaches, but the basic 101, 102 composition classes are what they are. Yeah. And since she wasn't the course developer, I thought it was very appropriate that we just talked about her experience as the facilitator because it is a super common experience for faculty all over the world, not just at ASU. Yes. Yes. And I, I think that she was really helpful and this was the kind of plan all along to have her come in and really share some tips and different things things that an instructor can do to feel comfortable on camera. It turns out practice. It's the same way you get to Carnegie Hall. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then we can just edit all the things that you make mistakes on. (laughs) And then you can come re-record it if it's Mm -hmm. a really bad experience. Mm -hmm. Right. And we allow that flexibility to do that. And you edit. And we edit. Which is a huge piece of using the studio. And it looks great. All right, let's get to it. Today, we have in studio... Dr. Emily Zarka, to talk to us about her course. What's your course, Emily? 
So I teach a variety of courses actually online here at ASU, both undergraduate and graduate. So everything from basic Shakespeare courses and survey courses to more specialized 500 level and up courses like the Gothic, of course, with my mm-hmm. specialty and posthumanism. And also listeners might be aware of this. You are the monster expert. I am. I'm ASU's official monster expert, and I've actually made my entire career devoting myself to that title, which is, yes, something I made up basically by myself and then worked hard enough to get the credentials to back it up. So when you say you're the official monster expert? They have mentioned me in interviews as the official monster expert, including the ASU's you know, news media paper. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right, I can officially say that because they're putting the official stamp on it. How did that come about? How did you become the monster expert? I'll try to give the short version because there's, of course, a long history to everything. And I am a (laughs) literature scholar, so I want to tell stories. But basically, I've always loved horror. I didn't think it was something I could make a career of. Went to University of Colorado for my undergraduate work, actually with the intention of being in print journalism. Uh, Print because I didn't want to be on camera, which is ironic now in many ways. Mm -hmm. And was just taking so many literature electives because I loved the course so much. Picked up a second major and happened to take uh, two classes at the exact same time, one about romanticism and one topics in popular culture, zombies, which was actually taught by the author, professor, and general awesome human being, Stephen Graham Jones. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't aware of his work at the time, but he was the first person who talked to me about horror in a way that I had always instinctually known to be true, that it did have so much meaning behind it. And then Dr. Jill Height Stevenson and romanticism made me fall in love with the genre and identified my first vampire in a poem and kind of (laughs) took off from there and decided that if I was going to teach, which is what I wanted to do, that I wanted to teach about something that I love. And why can't there be someone out there who's a voice saying that horror matters and monsters matter? Came to ASU, did my PhD, wrote my dissertation about the undead Mm -hmm. in British romantic literature. And during that experience, I had some fantastic mentors and members on my committee, including uh, Devaney Lucer, who is a fantastic scholar in many ways. And she encouraged me to start thinking about my work as something that could apply outside of the university as well. Mm-hmm. And I was going to give a basically a TED style talk for ASU opening up their new campus in Washington, D.C. at the end of my Ph.D. career. And one of the smartest things ASU did, so whoever's idea this was, um, for the knowledge mobilization, they had us have multiple meetings with business marketing professors Mm -hmm. here at ASU. And they were the first people who really took what Devaney had suggested and made me realize, like, yes, my research is a brand. And I Uh think a lot of scholars, particularly in the humanities, when we're already struggling so much for some people to prove that what we do matters We don't want to think about having to package up ourselves or our work in hashtags, for lack of a better way of putting it. And unfortunately, that's kind of where we're at. And I shouldn't say unfortunately. I think that that's actually a benefit. I think when you look at your research as a product, not necessarily something that can be sold, but something more people can access if Uh you produce it in a certain way. I think that's just making education more accessible. And that's ultimately where, to come back to the question, um, (laughs) ultimately where I'm trying to go and what I'm trying to do with my work with Monsters in general and teaching at ASU and doing everything with PBS and other outside engagement with like study hall and all that stuff. For me, it's just making education more accessible to more people. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. Tell us a little bit more about this PBS connection, Sarah. Yeah. So I'm the creator, writer, and host of a show called Monstrum for PBS on YouTube. It 
launched, oh gosh, I can't even remember. I think it launched in 2019 as just the Monstrum YouTube channel. And now it's part of Storied, which is Mm -hmm. PBS's online humanities content. And that was my Frankensteinian brainchild um, (laughs) when I was doing that little TED talk and basically marketing my work and saying that I wanted to do for monsters what Anthony Bourdain did for food. And Mm -hmm. like, I knew I had to have all these slogans and PBS gave me 15 minutes to essentially cold pitch them, which I don't have a film and media degree. So I had no idea or business what that even meant. So I had nothing really prepared besides me and my enthusiasm and sort of my tenets of why I thought that monsters should be something that we're talking about on Mm -hmm. a large scale. And it kind of spawned off from that. To be honest with you, I've never watched it. So I'm waiting for her to send the links to her favorite episodes for the show notes because that will be what I watch. It's mythological monsters in most cases, but she does touch on like the universal monsters, like Frankenstein and Dracula, those types Rad. of guys, but also the Wendigo and uh, just werewolves as a concept. So neat. it's a really, really cool and engaging program. Very neat. Okay. Well, now I'm going to have a new thing to binge. With PBS and Monstrum, that led to the Exhumed, A History of Zombies documentary, which was nationally broadcast and an oh, amazing neat. experience in so many ways. And now I'm co-host of Fate and Fabled, which is all about mythology. And yeah, I'm one of the humanities people at PBS, which is a great honor and still allows me to do what I really love, which is research and write and teach. It was so exciting when you came in to do study hall with us because it's, oh my gosh, I know her. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that all the time. I've watched that. I love that show. So it was really cool. Like uh, I was a fan of that I love having those moments because I think more people can relate to this with COVID and having to work from home and Zoom and all that. But it's very not disassociating. It's a completely different skill set to teach on camera. Even with something with PBS, when I'm looking directly at camera, even is different than traditional acting. And I think some people think that, oh, you're teaching on camera, you're doing the YouTube channel, you're acting or you're performing, you're not Mm -hmm. a scholar, which is definitely Mm. not true. I can't act to save my life. I had to for one of the episodes and I was terrible (laughs) at it. And I kept looking directly at camera, which I just did it right now, because (laughs) I want people that I'm talking to electronically, if that's in one of ASU use online classrooms or if that's the PBS channel or what have you to feel the connection because Mm -hmm. one of the pedagogies for my teaching is trying to come to students on their level and yes you may be across the world but maybe if I can make eye contact with you we Mm -hmm. can create that little pathos bond Mm -hmm. and we can have a better conversation even if it is electronically right and so when it comes to kind of uh, your more on-ground courses mm-hmm. or more specifically the online courses, mm-hmm. are you putting as much research and writing into those modules and, and that sorts of things as you are into something like as obviously as big of a production yeah. for like PBS or, or that kind of yes thing? Yes and no. So I'll clarify that I have yet to create my own course shell for ASU. So Mm -hmm. I'm teaching from other teacher shells, which is great because I get to learn from some of their projects and their lectures. So that's one of the things I love about teaching is learning from my students. So getting to learn, go back to school, I guess, so to speak, is really exciting. But it does take a lot of research and work because it's not just enough for me and how I function as a human to just read the assigned readings and look over the syllabus and watch lectures ahead of the class. I do do all that prep before I start teaching, which can be challenging as an adjunct. I might not get my assignment or my contract signed until right before the class starts. Mm-hmm. So I'm often reading through the night to, cause I should be able to answer the questions when right. the students come yeah. to me, even if I'm not the one usually teaching the class. So I do take a lot of time to read not only what's on the syllabus and engage with all those texts, but 
I, of course, go on my own tangents. Oh, okay, well, they're connecting Frankenstein in this way, but I want to bring in galvanism, so I need to make sure I brush up on that content mm-hmm. so I can give more context to my students. And part of that is because I teach all my classes very discussion-based, and that's reflected, actually, in a lot of the ASU lit online courses. Discussion boards are inherent. Yeah. In whatever format, because yeah. we need, that's how you learn, especially with literature, is everyone has their own unique perspective mm-hmm. that if we can talk about our own interpretations of an author, of their work, of those themes, I think that's how we learn, not just as scholars, but as people to see the world in different ways around us. So yeah, teaching online takes just as much work as teaching in person, if not more so, um, mm-hmm. particularly in discussion-based courses, because you, as the instructor, have to work harder to keep conversation going. Right. You can't rely on the awkward pause mm-hmm. for someone to fill in the blank. You have to more pointedly, directly ask questions. Um, and there are some techniques for that, but it's definitely a different kind of challenge to teach in an online space. Right. And the literature courses, obviously, that's that's all discussion, right? So you go yes. and you read and then you come back to the <laughs> yeah. class and you have these discussions yep. and it's, it's great that you're able to maintain that. And one of the things I encourage, because we can only, as an instructor coming into one of the courses, because of course there are standards that ASU sets and certain goals they want each course to accomplish, which is more than fine but we're not allowed to make major changes. I can Mm. suggest after the course, like let's, and I've done this where I said like, I think this text would maybe be more appropriate than this one. Can we flip it out? And that kind of has to get higher approval. I can't go into the Gothic lit course and even give, I could give additional lectures Mm -hmm. if I wanted to, or I do do that in mini format, which I can speak about, Mm -hmm. but I can't remove or take away anything or even a certain assignment I made suggestions to the grading rubric because I didn't think it was clear enough, but that had to happen after the course and it had to be approved. So sometimes you do come across roadblocks like that where you're like, dang, I wish I would do this a little differently, but I just try to give grace to my students and take it as a learning moment in myself. And because I can't add or subtract a lot of content, I love me an announcement post. Uh-huh. Um, so even outside of the discussion board or the graded space, I'll say like, here's a video of, you know, I just watched this adaptation of Dracula that I thought was really cool if you want to also check it out. Because I can't give them more work than the syllabus outlines. Oh, but right. I want to, I, I want to be like, let's talk about these other things. You want to so. supplement the edu- exactly. education. Exactly. So I do try to supplement the shells. Question from the peanut gallery. Yes. yes. Okay. I was wondering, and just because I'm surveying, uh-huh. when you take over these courses that you don't build, do you get like a facilitator guide that kind of walks you through common questions, the rubric, things like that? The tools you're going to use give you kind of a heads up and a setup? The heads up that I get is access to the course. I do have the ability to go into it and I can see the assignments and the rubrics if there are any, which online there should be and there usually are. And I can look at the lectures and sort of the modules, but in terms of like handholding guidance or common questions, no, that's part of my job as a scholar is I have to be prepared for that just like I would in the classroom. Even if I haven't read, God knows, when I taught the Shakespeare class, I hadn't read any of that stuff in a very, very long time. I still had to be ready to like answer questions about the Merchant of Venice, even if Mm -hmm. it had been 15 years since I'd read it. There wasn't any, you know, common Right. Questions. One pound of flesh. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> One pound, not two. I do actually, though, because I tend to teach the same classes over and over again on online, which I think is actually fun in some ways because I get to, again, get those different perspectives with the same material, which is always exciting. I do keep sort of my own like frequently asked questions or some of those announcement posts. I do save those course to course because I know those conversations are going to come up and I haven't been wrong yet. Because, I mean, that's nature. Even though we do have this different interpretations of literature, and we should, authors do things rhetorically and with their narratives that we end up talking about certain subjects or this moment's really weird in the text. Let's talk about it. So Mm -hmm. I do have some prep 
that I do, but right. there's not given to me. Right. Cause you, you have the text that you're going to explore and then you can kind of have some, a little bit of mm-hmm. leeway yeah. on how you lecture and that. A lot of the online courses that I teach at least have the recorded lectures, which again, I think there's some really strong positives with a lot of that and some room for improvements, of course. And I think, Oh, so you, so even the video content as well, it's not oh, yours. No, yeah. You're really I'm, just facilitating the course shell. Uh-huh. Yep. One of the contractual things I'm responsible for is like, an announcement video of like, hello, it's me. You're going to see another professor's face for the lectures. But oh, I, okay. and I yeah. always reiterate, like I am here behind the scenes mm-hmm. at all times. Like I am lurking in the discussion boards. I'm here sitting in my Zoom office hours. Even if no one shows up, I'm available by email. Well, you know what I also liked? She was talking about not only her experience as an adjunct faculty, which I think is a very important experience to express in course stories, because not only is she not the course developer, but it's like her approach when she's given a course, how she studies it, how she becomes the expert of that course, whether she made it or not. There's not necessarily a facilitation guide to give you all the keys of how to work the course best. So I really appreciated her perspective throughout this episode from that as well. Exactly. There's a spectrum of different types of educators that are involved in online courses. And yeah, you're not always the person who developed the course, but you still owe it to our students to give them a good experience. Yes. And Emily is definitely working her, doing like an amazing work to bring the students in and really make them feel connected. And yeah, you can tell she cares a lot. Oh yeah. It's wonderful. One trend that I've seen on campus versus online students is I get a lot more office hours, Mm -hmm. which makes sense because they don't have necessarily the organic space to ask me questions before and after class. So I think that that's led to some really cool teaching moments for myself, but also hopefully the students that Mm -hmm. you're getting like a one on one with me. And sometimes I'll be on for like an hour with some of those students and just talking about their like future career goals and Stuff like that that maybe doesn't happen in an on-campus course just because I have so many more students. There is a little bit more wiggle room, especially in the upper-level lit courses that are contained to have that really close work with mm-hmm. like the master's students, which I love to do. Are they aware of who you are sometimes? Sometimes. I think so. Mm-hmm. It's weird. And that's the thing about being in the public eye. And I think some of my students are like that, too, because they're like, I think I've seen that. And in my head, I'm like, well, if you've seen Monstrum, you've seen me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's not made up, well lit, you know, full hair and makeup be like Mm -hmm. me, but it's still me. Right, Um, right, So I think some people want to like dance around it. And also, I guess, maybe not seem creepy. Like I've seen every one of your Monstrum videos Mm -hmm. and now I'm taking your English 101. Like, Mm -hmm. cool, let's give us something to talk about. And yeah, maybe now we have that connection and that you're more willing to ask me to help you on your paper that's being graded Mm -hmm. because you know me a little bit more. That's probably an aid to any uh, other faculty out there who are doing these kinds of... I don't want to call it interventions or yeah. these kinds of activities <laughs> yeah. that that is maybe a helpful uh, way into connecting with their students Absolutely. to have that content. Are you, are you putting any of your content into the courses? Really good question. Some of it happens organically in my English 101 when I'm teaching, you know, how to write a good thesis statement. I'll, of course, use examples of things like Mary Shelley and like some of the monsters and model that way just because... That's research that I just have in my brain and what's on mm-hmm. my mind. Then I have gotten in my student feedback at the end of courses that people like that, I guess, talk to them about my outside research and even outside of ASU stuff, because I think this is a direct quote, it makes me seem like a real person. And right. I thought that was really interesting. It's very interesting. Sometimes I think professors facilitate this or promote it unconsciously, some consciously. And I think yeah. some of it is just the institution of higher academia and the illusions or ideas students have about it that professors aren't approachable. Mm-hmm. And literally, I just want to shake them. Like, I am here to help you. Like, let me help you pass this class. Please ask me questions. Yes, I do have a life. Like, yes, 
you know, work-life balance is hard for me too. I don't know when you sleep. I barely sleep either. Like, what's up? <laughs> um, so I think that having public scholarship and outside-facing work mm -hmm. does help humanize me for mm -hmm. the students. And I think particularly for students who are nervous about college for a variety of reasons, that I think is comforting or mm -hmm. at least humanizing. I always say that there's a reason humans in the humanities. If I can see more like <laughs> a real person and that helps them learn, mm -hmm. then I'm all about it. That's so, so interesting because you'd think that because you have the public eye on you, that it's almost a facade. Mm -hmm. But no, this is more of a humanizing thing yeah. rather than that kind of distancing thing that you might imagine happening. Yeah. And not to say that there isn't a facade. And I think that different scholars and different people who just engage, especially with something like YouTube mm -hmm. um, on a regular basis. It's, I'm not playing a character because it's inherently me. And we have outtakes at the end of the monster episodes. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons. Cause it is me. And I'm just being weird on set. My profession is being weird. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's in front of the classroom and sometimes it's on camera, uh -huh. but it's different. Like even this interview right now, I'm not in my normal like hair and makeup because I did just come from teaching. Some professors might choose to do that, but A, I don't have the time. Right. But B, it wouldn't be true to who I am if I came with like a perfect blowout and fake eyelashes and like the whole thing that I do for Monstrum because there is a different level. And I think that level is about genre expectation mm -hmm. and the humanizing element. And I think mm -hmm. when you're on camera, and again, this is just my personal philosophy. I want to be the best representation of myself physically and intellectually because there is this sort of evergreen quality to online material, especially something freely accessible like YouTube, where hopefully some of my students, you know, from in-person classes or online classes, like remember me and think of me fondly. But I think that I have less of a chance, especially on YouTube, to prove that. I mean, they tell us that we have like 10 seconds basically to get the audience's attention initially most of the time. And I don't want someone to be like, oh, well, you know, one of her eyelashes fell off. Like this clearly, because it honestly becomes a kind of an ethos problem right. about credibility. Like right. I'm putting care and effort into my appearance when I'm on camera because I want you to know I'm also putting effort into the content. I am trying hard to make this. I put the same exact rigor in my research and writing for Monstrum that I do into like my academic monograph and like stuff that would be in peer-reviewed journals. And I think that's something both the audience and also other scholars don't necessarily understand is my work outside of ASU isn't easier, it's harder. And you don't have the institution behind you mm -hmm. to kind of bolster you up in those no. ways. Yeah, so I got to do my work. So if that, and again, if it makes me feel better to feel like I'm looking my best, then that works for me on camera. And hopefully, again, just attributes to the energy. And I think though, that we do live in a very visual media heavy world. And our students are judging us, even if it's unconsciously, about mm -hmm. how we appear on camera. Sometimes it's even just lighting. Like I remember telling other um, colleagues, and I think I even said this in a department meeting at one point, I'm like, buy the stupid little $10 clip on ring light from Amazon for your COVID, uh, COVID classes, I shouldn't call them that, <laughs> for your Zoom classes or even your online office hours. Right. Because putting in that effort shows the students who expect good quality content and can get it so quickly on something like TikTok, mm -hmm. that if a TikToker is going to care that much yeah. for their 30-second video, I should be putting in that much effort to lighting because you're paying for your education with me. Right. And then, I mean, that's completely the philosophy that we have here mm -hmm. in this studio yeah. is to always kind of like have that best foot forward in terms of the content that mm -hmm. we put out there for the students yeah. and that it does matter. And it's not 
a one-to-one yeah. that if you look good, it's their content's good, yeah. but it certainly does help support yeah. and both support each other. And for me, looking good obviously is different standards for different people, but that's even something like just making sure you have a little powder on so you're not super shiny. Sure. That you're wearing comfortable clothes so you're not always fidgeting and adjusting on camera. Or again, the lighting. Yeah. The camera placement, yes. the microphones that you can be heard mm-hmm. is so important. And that is one thing I will say is I get so excited when I teach an ASU online course that you guys have worked with the English department and like I'm thinking of the Shakespeare class. There's mm. these amazing round tables. They're not even traditional lectures. Oh, is there? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> that was an early one too. We didn't even get all the kinks out, but yeah. But we uh, that, that. It's such a difference from some of the other course shells I teach where maybe you have a professor just in front of their laptop, which and again, from probably five years ago or mm-hmm. like the quality difference. Again, the content level is usually the same in terms of academic vigor and importance, right? but it's especially with so much visual media content, us and students engage with on a daily basis. It mm-hmm. is so much easier to pay attention to those more stylized um, formatting. And again, right. I think that that's a standard that ASU should expect to be giving our students. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be investing like y'all are here at Ed Plus in putting basically our money where our mouth is. And if we want to be the most innovative, then you damn better sure that we are doing good lighting at the very minimum, right? right. That we're well liked, right. that our students can hear us and understand us and want to watch us. And the faculty out there, we can only do so much in terms of, I mean, we're, we're ready to go. We have all the resources here for you, but you have to come into the studio yes. and you have to have that kind of like, kind of feel, feel inspired to come in and mm-hmm. make quality content like this because we, we get so many people that are, you know, especially after COVID that they feel like a laptop camera in front yeah. of a window is sufficient and it's it's really not. And we get a lot of content that we're yeah. like, oh, it's a little questionable and, and we'd love for you to come in faculty. This is a commercial part and of it. And I'll look directly at camera to yeah. say that use them. Everyone who works here is fantastic, honestly. And frankly, it selfishly takes less effort to come here and schedule time in studio to have the good quality to upload to your courses than it does to, and I do this too, to light up effectively at your own home. Make sure you have childcare, that your pets are quiet. Here you get to have a well-lit, well-recorded space with nice people that will get you good content. It's absolutely <laughs> worth it. And you don't have to edit it yourself. And you don't have to, you edit, don't have yourself, to edit it yourself. Which the big I, can't, piece. I certainly can't do. We are a full-service studio. And we also have other self-service areas in here that are still upgrades from the kinds of videos that you can make on your laptop. I've used both. I've actually done a voiceover that um, for, I think, like Zoomed and for the PBS stuff in these studios because the quality is so good. I do want to pause before you guys get into additional tips because I know you're going to go there. But mm-hmm. Emily, you talked about office hours and I know that this is a point of contention for students attending and faculty offering their time and people not showing. And yes, it could be because you're Emily Zarka from Monstrum, but <laughs> do you use other strategies to get your students to come to your office hours? Because I do think that you are really connective, but the students don't know that until they come into the office hours, especially in the online courses. It's different for online and in-person, so I'll address them, I guess, separately. For both cases, it's one of those you can, like, lead, what was it, like, lead the sheep to water where you can't make it drink kind of a situation. Mm -hmm. I just try to be as accessible as possible. And part of that is not just putting my office hours for online or in-person courses on the syllabus. I'm talking about them every week. I'm like, hey, I'm going to be five minutes late because I'm going to go grab a coffee. If you're coming, like, let me know or I'll be there. I like have candy. I just, I will bribe them. Um, In terms of less bribing strategies to get them to come. And I am in a unique situation. I'd say too, because I don't have my personal office Mm -hmm. um, or a room, which I wish I did, because I think it'd be helpful to make that fostering that like space, like safe space and 
learning space, which is sure. hard to do in like a shell mm-hmm. of a room, basically. But one thing I do do is I'll say that I will look at your paper before the final draft is due during my office hours. Mm-hmm. So okay. if yeah. you want feedback that, from yeah. me, you have to come to my office hours. Mm-hmm. And I do tell students, I'm like, hey, I get it. If your classes don't match up with my office hours, email me. I will make time for you. I can stay after maybe a little bit. And again, not all professors feel this way and not that they should have to. I think there's already a lot of demands on us, especially as career track faculty or non-tenure track faculty. We're mm-hmm. asked to do a lot for very little. Mm-hmm. So I'm by no means am saying like you don't have to be on 24-7, but I will try to work with students. And yeah, if they're struggling with a paper and they need to meet with me at 8 a.m. on a Friday, I'm probably going to say yes, because mm-hmm. I do want them to succeed. But part of the reason I'm able to do that is because I teach English and I don't have hundreds of students like some of the other professors in the intro courses here. Mm-hmm. So that's one way is I say, hey, I can give you personalized one-on-one feedback at every step of the way, not just the assigned stuff in class. Online, I love to actually offer communal office hours. Mm-hmm. But I think that especially in the online space, some students feel disconnected from the university experience in general. Mm-hmm. And I can't force them to talk to each other, but I think they get intimidated with being Mm -hmm. just one-on-one on on Zoom with a professor and like staring right at you and you don't have Hmm. sometimes some of the social cues that we rely on or, Mm -hmm. you know, that easing into conversation that happens more organically, although I try to recreate it. So I will say like something along the lines of here are my normal office hours, but hey, or if I post one of those announcement videos of like, here's this penny dreadful episode that I think is an amazing interpretation of Shelly's creature. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to schedule additional office hours or just an informal chat like over coffee if we want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And then I'll like have a poll. I'll use different online polling software Uh to be like, if times that work for you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you get unlucky and it's like four people want to do it at completely different times. Then I'm like, well, I'm committed to it. So I will do it at four different times. But there are just so many demands on time in general. Mm -hmm. That gets harder and harder, especially as a new mother and more projects I get offered and take because I never want to do ASU a disservice. And I do give the exact same amount of time and energy to all of my projects. So that often means I don't want to paint this like beautiful picture of it. Some parts of it are great of being a non-traditional scholar Mm -hmm. and being in the public eye. And Mm -hmm. some of it's really hard. Like I have two scripts due next week for a shoot and we have to film around my teaching schedule and my office hours. Right. And I will probably be working every night after dinner and at least one day this weekend to get those scripts done in time Mm -hmm. because I have grading and I have lectures and I have everything else to deal with. So I don't work a typical nine to five job. And I think a lot of professors don't, but I do think that's one of the drawbacks about being a public scholar, at least my experience so far, is to have the opportunities and to be so accessible to all different people. I have to work very non-traditional hours. Right. And the measures are different too. The measures of success are probably very different. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Uh, Rewarding in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's benefits and negatives to teaching both in person and online and Mm -hmm. teaching through ASU and then doing more publicly accessible teaching like with PBS. And they're all completely different audiences. We discussed in study hall um, and some of the (laughs) rhetoric and composition techniques. I mean, you are having to use different tools and strategies to speak to your audience because we know that audience is important in structuring our argument. Try right. to understand as much as we can and go from there. And so so now that you mentioned the PBS stuff, yeah. it's gotten me thinking like, uh, so what was your relationship to being on camera? So we're, we're kind Ooh, of, yeah. part of this is to to give a little bit of encouragement and some tips to our faculty out there that maybe 
are uh, nervous about being on camera. So share with us your journey and then we'll talk about some ways that you overcame any kind of problems or or learn (laughs) tips and skills. The first thing I'll say is it's definitely a learning curve. I Mm -hmm. wanted to do print journalism because I did not want to be on camera Mm because I didn't want to have to deal with the physical appearance scrutiny. I don't think that obviously happens, or at least happens in the same way as does teaching online. Hopefully teaching online, you're reaching hundreds or thousands of students. I'm reaching millions of people. I call mm-hmm. them students. I'm reaching millions of students online, which is so intimidating in a lot of ways. <laughs> so I think honestly, teaching did help me be on camera mm-hmm. in the sense that I guess I faked it till I made it. I am actually very introverted mm-hmm. and I You had to get weird somehow. Yeah. Right. I, I have reservations about speaking to big groups of people, especially if I'm unfamiliar with those people. And I used to get nervous, like every class, even if I taught it 10, 20 times before, you know, the new semester starts and that first time you walk into the classroom. And I think part of that is just experiences that I've had had that haven't been so positive, being a younger scholar um, Mm -hmm. and someone who also looks younger. Uh I've had resistance to students in the past, or at least shock I've actually been questioned by other faculty asking to show my credentials because they didn't believe that I was actually the professor. And that was a while ago, but I don't want those experiences to happen. (laughs) So I do try to, I guess, be more confident. And part of that does come back to the presentation element, but I Mm -hmm. won't harp too much on that. So being on camera was something I was definitely not comfortable with. One big thing that ASU did help me with is initially I was approached by PBS before Monstrum, because I'd worked with the Frankenstein Bicentennial Project here at ASU. And PBS was doing this project called The Great American Read. And they were looking for people to talk about Frankenstein. And so they approached ASU and they gave them my name, essentially. And I was a PhD student at the time. And ASU actually offered PR training. So I did go into the building where Crow is, although I didn't see him. The man, the myth, (laughs) the legend. But they actually have a mini, this was before all the Ed Plus stuff. They have Mm -hmm. a little tiny studio in there. And basically, just they just asked me questions mm. about Frankenstein, about anything on camera, and then actually sent me the video and like reviewed it with me about, oh, you pause here and you might want to look at camera for certain times, but not at others. They'll let you know. Mm-hmm. So that was good. So I would mm-hmm. say if you can practice, honestly, even just using your like smartphone and practicing doing it before mm-hmm. you're like in the well-lit space, you have to do retakes for things and it gets easier mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. So I was reluctant, but the best thing I can say to get more comfortable in front of the camera is just to do it. Using the resources here in the studio will help immensely. And then you kind of get used to the process and it's not that scary. And yeah, there are lights everywhere and Mm -hmm. mics in your face and it just becomes part of your teaching environment. Before it felt super weird and like I was just coming and going, but now it's like, okay, this is another teaching space. This is a different kind of lecture hall. This is a different kind of office hour. One thing that is not for me is I treat the camera like a person which feels weird at first. So that means I'm just going to do right now. Like I'm trying to talk to you like we're in the room together. This is exactly the same level of voice. At least right now I'd be using for an informal conversation uh, if we were in person because I want that bond Mm -hmm. with the audience. That's important to me. And I think that makes me feel more comfortable and makes it easier for me to get what I'm trying to teach across. Uh, Because students aren't stupid. They pick up if you feel awkward 
on camera. And the only way to get over that that I'm aware of, especially because I'm not an actor, is mm-hmm. to just keep doing it over and over again. Right. And I will say that that paid off even for PBS. Before Monstrum existed as a YouTube channel, I actually did five videos for PBS's Facebook Watch for oh. The Great American Read. Mm-hmm. And when we launched the YouTube channel, they actually had me go back and re-record them because I was so much better on camera. Yeah. Because I didn't treat it like a lecture. Mm-hmm. I treated it like a conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think that teaching online when you're even giving the same material that you would in a lecture, you have to be more comfortable. Naturally, that's kind of how my teaching has developed anyway. But if I have an in-person class and I'm giving a lecture, that lecture is maybe 15 minutes long because I'm going to lose their attention. You have even shorter time Mm -hmm. on an online course, I think. Or at least you need to be able to give breaks to to pause. Like, okay, now I'm going to move on to X, Y, and Z. You can't just go on tangents in the same Mm -hmm. way you'd be able to in a classroom. So you have to be a little more structured in that way. But it's... It has to be conversational. You have to treat the camera like a person. I feel like I'm making eye contact with a person. And sometimes I will actually get... This is weird, like, tunnel vision um, with, like, a teleprompter. All I see is, like, the camera... Like, the rest of the studio does not exist to me. It's just me and the camera because I'm so engaged with it as a person. I teach post-humanism, so there's a lot I can also say about that. Um, but positives and negatives, so yeah, I think that... Is <laughs> a person with uh, <laughs> legs that are metal. Is it a cyborg? Is it not? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I think doing it more is definitely important. Don't be afraid to use a teleprompter. Uh-huh. I think people think that if you're going to record online content for a course that you have to just riff You don't have to, and you shouldn't, frankly, especially because it saves everyone time and energy. If you have a script to read from that's been edited, the writing process is, I guess, more thorough. That's probably one of the biggest differences between my in-person teaching and my online teaching Mm -hmm. is I'm definitely more scripted, but I try to write in my own voice still. So it feels conversational. And you've had a lot of experience doing that. Yes. And yeah, it gets easier. It literally gets easier every single time. Yeah. And to put in a plug for our studio here, we have a teleprompter. We do have that ability. And we are also very patient and we take multiple takes. There's no problem with that. And I would say though, too, if you do your first set of videos, you want to come back and redo those videos later. There's absolutely no problem doing that. And I think that's great and and good advice that you you gave about review it, check it out, watch yourself. Practice saying it out loud in front of a camera, even Mm -hmm. if that is just on your smartphone. You'll hear table reads is something that I will say one of the best things that public scholarship has done for me in working with Crash Course and working with PBS is As a professor, outside of maybe peer review or work with your colleagues, it's very insular in my experience in terms of bouncing ideas around and getting feedback on your writing. Like, for instance, submitting an academic monograph. Like, yeah, maybe I've had one of my friends read the chapter, but it's like an ask, Mm -hmm. right? And then the next time I get concise editing feedback is going to be from an actual peer review, which can go lots of different ways and it's so stressful. Mm -hmm. So I've become less precious about my own work because I'm so used to having writing be more collaborative. I write the script, I do the research, but every version, even like for Crash Course, for Study Hall, goes through multiple iterations and we do the table reads. Mm -hmm. And a lot of stuff that we don't pick up on with like print editing will come out and like, this sounds bizarre, this joke isn't landing. So you do need to practice reading whatever your script is out Mm -hmm. loud before Mm -hmm. you're in front of the camera or the mic. And then again, just I like to come prepared, camera ready. I'll even do things. I mean, y'all saw me do it even when I was pregnant. Like, I'll wear heels, even though mm-hmm. no one's going to see them <laughs> right. because I'm shorter in stature. It, like, makes me feel a little more authoritative. Mm-hmm. And those little things that I would do, like, in the classroom to feel more confident, I also do on camera, even though I'm just talking to the camera and maybe they're going to see me for the waist up or what have you. Right. 
I'm usually not going to be like wearing leggings. I'm going to be fully dressed like I would to give a lecture. And that's just mm-hmm. how I feel more confident and also makes me feel more like, hey, this is just another teaching opportunity. Right. It's not just a straight recording. I think that's a misconception people have too, is that recording online content is so different. And yeah, a little bit different maybe in how you're packaging it, but mm-hmm. it's basically the same. Yeah. Yeah. And as a plug to those, again, again, for the studio, there's so many times where I've had people who come in and they're, they're very nervous about being on camera, mm-hmm. but then we get the really nice light on yeah. and we turn that <laughs> monitor and they go, Oh, and so that, that yeah. kind of plays into this idea that like when you're home, even if you're going to do these yeah. these videos at home, if you look good, you're going to like watching yourself yes. over and over. And that sounds like vanity, but it is. And a little bit of it is. And there's nothing wrong with there's that. There's nothing wrong with that. No, and good lighting makes a world of a difference. Mm-hmm. You are who you are. Your face is your face. Like, mm-hmm. right. But if you're well lit, everyone looks better with good lighting. <laughs> so many good tips. Yeah. I think just practice, practice, keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Be polished and professional still, even if it's not going to be seen on camera and don't be afraid to do it again. That's one of the brilliant things actually of recording online lectures in someplace here where it's going to be edited. I know the lighting is good. I can do the retake because mm-hmm. um, I do end up having to film some social reads and stuff for PBS at home. And it takes so much longer you drop one word, you have to like stop the video and restart and Mm -hmm. do the whole thing again. And here it's just easy. I actually love giving that to my faculty when I recommend them to the studio is like, don't think this is it. This is your tryout. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try things on. I'm going to see what works. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to decide that I hate the entire thing or I love parts of it. And then I'm going to go redo the part that I want to do. That'd be the other thing too I would suggest is don't wait. You guys are super helpful and you'll say like, hey, that didn't sound right. But again, because I've been doing this for long enough now, if I know I make a mistake, I'll be the one to say like, let me do it again. Or I won't even say, let me do it again. I'll just pause and go back to the start. Like I can recognize when something's off and instead of waiting for you to tell me, I'm Mm -hmm. just going to do it again. It's pretty magical to watch you in the studio here. Like, okay, that's a 17 minute record for a 15 minute video. (laughs) That is like, there's no fat on your performance. You know exactly, oh, that was a bad take. I'm going to do that over again. And again, that's experience. I was no way like that Mm -hmm. initially. In some ways, it's I probably lecture better mm-hmm. on camera than off because there is not there's not room for error, but I get into such a different mindset in some ways because of the things like the lighting. It's like all these cues that I'm like, all right, right let's do it. And yeah. I do have different voices. They're not significantly different. And sometimes that comes from the producer. My reads for Monstrum are slightly different than my study hall just because of what they want and inflection and content all right. that so use your voice it's a tool so much yeah. in the same way you'd use like punctuation marks i talk with my hands a lot so if you do that don't stop you're gonna look stilted and you're gonna look unnatural and that's not right. gonna read well so talk with your hands if you need to and go slow i talk very fast so i do mm. have to talk slower on camera a little bit too so but it mm-hmm. all comes just from repetition, from doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, I mean, they're just like any expertise. Yeah, exactly. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us today on Course Stories. Uh, is there anything other than the millions of things, no, specifically <laughs> the millions of things that you do that you would like to plug? Obviously, just my work with PBS and Monstrum. You can follow me on Twitter. I know Twitter <laughs> at uh, Dr. Emily Zarka, just latest and greatest stuff that I'm doing because mm-hmm. things are always changing. But I would also like to say, especially for anyone who teaches here at ASU, if you're watching this, 
please reach out to me. I know that being on camera is a really weird experience. I know that if you're even considering public scholarship, it can feel very scary. And I can only speak from my own experience, but don't be afraid to reach out. Stars, they're just like us. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That's so cool. She's so cool. I really like her a lot. Yeah, she's great. We had a whole talk after she was done with the episode, by the way, about like go bags and like oh, being yeah. ready for the zombie apocalypse, which yes. I just love about her because us too. Yes, because <laughs> and I've definitely heard the Zombified podcast is one that she has yes. been a guest on. It's, it's produced here at ASU and it's, it's definitely something podcast. worth checking out. Yeah. yeah, we'll link that as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. All right, Mary. So what do we want the listeners to do? Like, listen, subscribe, tell your friends and family. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And also, if you're at the OLC and you attend our sessions, vote for us. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Yeah. I feel like we should plug anytime we can. I'm not just saying it. I'm being very direct <laughs> about it. Vote for us. You! <laughs> vote for us. Please. Seriously. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Course Stories is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You can reach us at Stories at asu.edu. Course Stories is produced by the Instructional Design and New Media team at EdPlus at Arizona State University. If you're an instructor at ASU Online, tell us your course story and we may feature it in a future episode. Thanks for listening.